Hi everyone, and welcome to episode 4 of Everyday Internal. I'm Jacob Corey, and I'm joined by... Matt Pavlik. Sean O'Brien. And I'm Sam Craven. We missed last week due to Matt uh, not feeling well. Unfortunately, he caught a little case of engineered plague. But he's back for this week's episode. Today we're going to be talking about the Eternal community as a whole, and what you can do to improve and grow the community. After that, we'll be going back to the previous topic, how to exploit some weaknesses in the metagame, and we're going to be talking about some specific cards that we think are underplayed at the moment. After a brief aside, we'll be going into one card in particular which we feel is strong, but not played right now due to people's fear of mistakes. That card, the always fun to discuss, Cabal Therapy. Let's get started. Matt, do you want to talk about uh, Star City Philly results? Yeah, so the Star City results were from, I think, two weeks ago, because GP Miami was actually just this past weekend, so they didn't have any legacy going on. So if we take a look at the results, which I'm pulling up right now, uh, first place was actually a Maverick deck, which I'm really surprised. I mean, not that Maverick is bad or anything, but, you know, hasn't been performing the last few months. It's great to see coming back, more of a junk build. Then we've got Reanimator, Shardless Bug, Rug Delver, Ant Bug, and our various flavors of Esper, along with Omnitel. So it's a pretty good pretty good slice of legacy at the moment. John? Yeah, I mean, we, we saw Maverick a little bit at Bizarre Moxon with the Aether Vial build. Um, this particular flavor of Maverick, you might say, uh, well, first of all, it's got a little bit of the dark tinge, um, and maybe a little extra anti-combo hate with two Mind Sensors main, um, or against decks with eight plus fetches. Being able to power out a... Uh, second turn Mind Sensor off a of Mana Dwarf could be a pretty back-breaking play in a field full of 10-fetch decks. So. I personally love that um, the finals featured Maverick against Reanimator. It's as though we took a, a step back into uh, last summer. Just the two big decks duking it out against each other. And uh, very happy to see Maverick have had won that, uh, that exchange. Probably in no small part to Deathrite Shaman. Yeah, it's interesting to note the Reanimator is the, is the uh, all-in... 15 land, 4 lotus petal, uh, master of the mulligan version of reanimator. So, um, a little bit different maybe than the ones we saw a couple of years ago, which I think at least had 18, 18 lands. Um, this one relying on lotus petal for the, to the, you know, for the, I guess the god start of Entomb Reanimate, uh, Drizzle Brand, turn one, so... Also a pair of uh, Ad Nauseam Tendril decks in the top 16. Um, I think really taking advantage of the fact that uh, we're essentially entering a mid-range hell uh, in terms of legacy results. So um, good call by those pilots to uh, taking a deck that's just too quick to deal with on, uh, on most parts and uh, especially punish decks that run only three Force Wheels. I was just saying, uh, you know, sometimes it's hard to glean exactly what the total field was just based on the, the top 16. Um, Certainly. But to, to Jacob's point, uh, you know, bringing tendrils to a a room full of uh, you know mid-range creature decks is always a smart move. So, but uh, we don't have a real feel for the entire breakdown of the of the field. But maybe uh, uh, you know maybe tendrils was a good choice that day. Just looking at what I look looking at what top sixteen anyway it would seem it was a good choice. It's certainly, again, we have this is another one of those top 16s that's just it's an excellent slice of legacy. That also means that it's a little boring to discuss because there's nothing crazy going on for us to say, look at that. Well, let's get on to uh, the topic of community building. 
Um, I know I can share with my personal experience um, trying to essentially foster legacy in uh, in my community. And I'm a, I'm a huge fan of legacy. I've discussed before. I've been playing for at least eight years. Uh, this is definitely my format, and I feel like it has a lot of benefits compared to standard or uh, old extended. Now it's, I guess, modern. Um, and really just trying to get that out into the community, um, part of the outreach that, uh, as a player of it, I, as a player, I went out and, you know, engaged uh, the other players in my community, built decks, and, and really just showed them how cool or how, like, the old decks you can really build and play um, to have a lot of fun and even to successful finishes. So um, that's really what we're going to be discussing over the next uh, 10 or so minutes. Sean, what are some of your uh, experiences in building the legacy community in your neighborhood? Well, uh, I think anybody listening from the Atlanta community uh, will be able to uh, attest to the fact that I do everything but build community, as I'm generally somewhat of an elitist. Um, I badmouth standard at every chance I get. Um, and if somebody comes to the store and doesn't know the rules or can't read my foreign cards, I usually look at them like they are uh, on the level of rabbit turds. So I'm not much of a community builder myself. Um, I want to go to Legacy to play interesting old cards, uh, have interactions in Magic that you can't get with the formats that I have no interest in, like Standard and Sealed. But I have observed the ebb and flow of the crowds in Atlanta, um, and besides my off-putting attitude, uh, I think some of the reasons why it can be tough to build a community uh, are a feeling, I think from some players, especially standard converts, that legacy uh, is a bit of a, um, I don't want to say coin, use the coin flip term, uh, but I think sometimes some of them feel like the games kind of end with them having no impact on the game. You can, you know, uh, you can call them unwinnable matches. And we see this a lot after the Atlanta GPs. We'll get a big spike a couple weeks before Atlanta Legacy GP. Uh, players will buy into the format or buy a deck, you know, right you know, off the internet. Buy a few dual lands, whatever else they need. We'll get a nice spike in players, maybe between, we'll go up to 25, 30 players on a Wednesday night. The GP will happen, uh, and then maybe attendance will swell for the following Wednesday, and then maybe another Wednesday after that. And then after a week or two, inevitably, players just get frustrated and quit, or a certain sub-segment, anyway, get frustrated and quit. And, um, you know, having you know, known those people outside of Legacy, I think the fair-unfair thing comes up a lot, where... They want to play a deck that has some level of interactivity, and in the past three weeks, you know, they've endured enough Ritual Ritual LED Tutor that, uh, or Show and Tell Derp Emrakul that, that they just, they're just not interested, and, you know, it's just a fact of the format. The format's got powerful cards, and I think novice players who are used to playing Preacher decks with removal um, need a little either help, uh, you know, from other players on how to combat the unfair strategies, um, and I think they also sometimes just need help in learning what the heck happened to them, and I, I hear that a lot. Uh, new player comes in, buys a Maverick deck, buys a Zoo deck, gets blown out three straight games, and he actually doesn't even know how he lost, and um, you know, I think that that curbs interest in the format, curbs interest in the community. Um, so for those patient souls out there who don't mind explaining things like 
uh, how Lion's Eye Diamond works, um, I commend you for building the community. Now I can I can back that up, Sean. <clears throat> I mean, definitely in the in the local scene. I'm talking like uh, like ten person local events on the weekly side. Um, we occasionally get people dropping into the store, and we introduce them really to Legacy, saying, you know, hey, you have all these old cards you haven't played in ten years. Um, put together a deck. You know, here's here's a Legacy format. Uh, obviously, you can't play your Mind Twist. That's banned for some reason. Um, but aside from that, you know, you can build pretty much anything from when you were playing, cobble that together and uh, get some games going, you know, maybe uh, strike a nostalgic chord, um, check out some new strategies. Of course, the downfall of that, uh, and I've seen it personally a couple times, is these players are not prepared for, like, like Sean mentioned, uh, a show-and-tell strategy or a sneak attack, um, which is really, really aggressive and really efficient, but uh, at the same time, you don't really get to feel like you played a game of Magic. So um, one of the things that I usually try to do is to play a deck that punishes those strategies locally, um, and that may be like playing a you know elf combo deck, which doesn't really isn't real in line. But uh, you know you can tone it back down if you're playing against a new player and just play like an aggro strategy. Um, sometimes even a control deck with uh, humility and, and, and snaring bridge, just to kind of like put those decks on rain um, and allow more mid-range strategies to kind of flourish. And I think that that builds a better community locally at least. Um, so at least gets interest uh, going. Uh, and people will you know, be creative, start doing their research at home, building uh, decks that they feel that they can really get behind. Um, and uh, Sam, maybe you want to talk about some, uh, some ways they can kind of at least try out some of the decks, maybe like using uh, proxies or uh, lending out decks to, to players who don't have those cards. So actually, I think I'm going to butt in first in front of Sam. Uh, so, so, the, uh, so the legacy community in Vancouver kind of died off a little bit after one of the major stores closed in about 2005. And for a couple of years, kind of stores were trying to build it up, but because of the way the city is laid out, it's kind of hard to get from one end to the other very efficiently at rush hour when most of these legacy tournaments are taking place. So I think I think what you have to do is try to concentrate on a store or moving around stores where you're going to have uh, easy access for players to get to and at a good time. I've noticed a lot of legacy players are a little bit older, have more responsibilities. Uh, a lot of them work. So I mean, if you're trying to get people into the group, younger or older, having it at a good time is really key and having a good location. Uh, lending cards and decks is also a huge factor. So if you're an established legacy player trying to grow a community, lend out decks, lend out cards to people. Um, get these people into the format by playing a deck and have them go, wow, this is an amazing format, look what I can do. I think having them enter the format with their little dirtily casual deck and then they go get stomped at the local legacy, that's not really going to encourage people to join. I mean, at least I remember starting off bringing my casual burn deck to my first legacy tournament and just getting absolutely stomped by like survival of the fittests and mana drains everywhere and world gorger dragons it was just like that wasn't where i wanted to be so i built a survival of the fittest deck now not everybody is going to have their own um have their own power to kind of go out and say hey i'm gonna go build this deck so giving them a deck to kind of start with even if it's a meta deck, like somebody was saying before, something that's really good 
in your local community. Say it's even just like bloodmoon.deck. Just having them something that they can win with is is nice, is going to make them feel good and want them to get into the format. That's not to say that you should go easy on them, but easing them into it is not a bad idea either. Uh, also, too, what I try to do is encourage, if you have extra staples, try and get them out into your local community instead of like selling them off to whatever random store. You know, trade them to, pl uh, to s players that are just starting out or host tournaments where you have staples as prizes. A lot of these cards are a little bit cost prohibitive for some of the younger folks to get into. You know, having a Tundra as a prize might not mean much for you, but for somebody who is, you know, just starting out, maybe in high school, doesn't have a job, whatever, you know, that can mean the world to them. So just, you know, making sure you provide a good atmosphere, having convenient times, convenient locations, you know, being consistent and lending out cards, those are all huge, at least in my opinion. Sam? I definitely agree with you on all those points. I'll just kind of... Uh just a little rewind, go back through this one by one. You mentioned uh, good times and good locations. That's, of course, very important. Um, I think what that breaks down to more specifically is really having uh, having someone, a tournament organizer, basically, who is willing to foster a, uh, a legacy crowd. And as an example of uh, some, some that are and aren't, um, in my local legacy community here in Houston, the tournaments are whenever we want them to be. If the store is open, uh, the guy who owns the store is willing to fire uh, a Legacy 8-man at any time. Um, on the opposite side, um, where I just left, and I won't mention it because uh, I don't want to badmouth any stores, all of uh, the Legacy events, there were several stores, every Legacy event was on a weekday night, and all of them had terrible prizes, and it's the kind of thing where uh, I'm not really going to want to go to your uh, Legacy tournament that's going to end at 11 p.m. on a work night when you're giving out standard packs. So, again, it's, it's really helpful if you can foster community not just in terms of time and location, but also things like almost, it almost you feel unwanted. And it's nice if you can have somebody who can help bring, really bring everybody together with something, whether that's uh, better prizes, whether that's um, better times, all of those kind of things all together. Um, you mentioned card availability, which is another uh, really big thing. I know in uh, every Legacy event that I've played in, somebody's been borrowing cards. It's always been a big thing in every Legacy community I've been in that people are borrowing cards. And I just uh, got, I feel it's the pimpest thing I've bought yet from uh, Magic. I got my second set of Forces and Wastelands, which means that now at any time, I have two decks built, which means if we only have seven people, we can say, hey, who wants to play Legacy? You've got a deck already ready. And that's something that we found, at least in our local meta, has brought a lot of people in, people who uh, wouldn't have played before. Sometimes they won't buy in, they won't buy a deck, but if you're willing to loan them a deck, they'll come and play every week. Um, and that's always a positive thing. Like I've said many times, my number one thing is I want more people playing. If that means lending out cards, if that means you mentioned proxies, uh, I'm fine with that because I just want to play. Um, I know somebody like Sean might not be as fine with that because, you know, he wants everything to look good. But to me, it's all about getting to play. So if that's one more avenue to get to play, then uh, that's great. Even just like <clears throat> what's at the, at the local store, um, on a random weeknight, you know, that's really your recruitment opportunity. Uh, let's say there's uh, Thursday Night Drafts, for instance. Uh, if you and a, and a good legacy buddy of yours go to the store and, and bring a couple decks each and just start playing pickup games, <clears throat> people will stop by and ask, hey, what's going on? Or, hey, I haven't seen that card before. What's that do? Um, just, con just to build up the interest between the local uh, player base. Uh, you know, sometimes I'll even just like, hey, 
try this deck out. You know, you look like you're interested in uh, playing this Doomsday Fetchland Tendrils deck. Take a crack at it. Who knows? Maybe uh, maybe there's a combo deck aficionado in that uh, standard drafter. And that's actually we've managed to build in my uh, at my local store a fairly strong vintage community. And now not everyone owns power, but we have a lot of people who own basically every card under two hundred dollars they own for their deck because they want to be able to play vintage and they want to be able to play with as many cards as they can because they like decks like TPS or. Uh, you know, like gush tendrils that do really interesting things. And I think it's good to encourage people, you know, by showing them, hey, this is how this cool thing works. And uh, we get a lot of EDH players that way because you, a lot of EDH players play EDH because they want to do the craziest thing possible. And you say, well, hey, Legacy and Vintage, you get to do the craziest thing possible and you get to do it for Planeswalker points. Uh, vintage is just 60 card uh, EDH in my book. <laughs> I think regarding use of proxies, I think proxies are kind of a contentious issue. I know people are going to bring up talking about uh, how vintage in the United States was a little bit hampered by the use of proxies and how Europe's vintage community has grown substantially just due to the fact that you know, they actually have power. Well, I mean, we can kind of argue that back and forth, but that kind of might have to do with you know, the economics of the euro versus the US dollar at the time. However, I think if people need proxies to play for at least a little bit before they can actually get um, actually pick up you know your set of tundras or your set of forces or whatever I think that's totally fine even if you're not running sanctioned tournaments just getting people playing getting them interested will make them want to buy these cards this is not to say that you should hold uh, tournaments that are you know all proxy all the time either because that doesn't encourage anything but I mean if you have a situation like we had a tournament two weeks ago where basically one person had to drop off at the last minute and they were bringing cards for about two to three people. And they were bringing, you know, an extra set of Dark Confidence, an extra set of Wastelands, an extra set of Bayous. I mean, we I ended up letting this person play because, I mean, it was either, you know, let them play with proxies. I mean, we weren't going to sanction it anyway. So, I mean, you know, if we let them play with proxies, you know, some people might be, oh, this person's playing with proxies. Uh, but if we don't let them play, then we're down a person. We've got an odd number now. That person is already here. Then the house to go home. It's really awkward. So get just just letting them play is, I think, the better option. And you know, eventually that person, you know, will will on their own pick up the staples, hopefully, and and do what they need to do. Uh, Everyday Eternal does not sanction or condone sanctioning tournaments using proxies. Thank you, Wizards of the Coast. Of course not. We would we would never <laughs> condone such a thing. No, obviously. Of course, not. Uh, <coughs> unsanctioned tournaments are. Uh, are still allowable, and, um, you know, unlimited proxies is a little bit of a stretch. I think 15 or 10 proxies um, is a good way to encourage both the players to uh, to pick up these cards that they're playing with, um, which has an added benefit of helping out the store. They get to sell the singles, um, even if it is, like, the 90% of the deck that's more affordable. Um, it still creates a little bit of movement at the store, um, and the stores definitely appreciate that. So... Um, I think the ultimate drive is really just to go for um, sanctioned tournaments um, at these stores. And, and one strategy that I, I did was um, to help organize um, the tournaments uh, across several stores, essentially make sure that each store wasn't booking the same weekend as another store. And I think overall, I, I'm pretty fortunate to have that here in Southern California. We have uh, quite a few big stores that uh, do weekend legacy tournaments. but Really, the important point is to 
make sure that these stores don't book the same day for those tournaments and essentially compete for the same limited amount of players um, that can come out to these tournaments and play. The other perspective on eternal format tournaments is the retailer's perspective. And I think in Atlanta, where we have, uh, we have I would say, two large uh, magic stores, game stores that, you know, 75% of their business is magic. Two fairly large ones. As you guys know, Atlanta gets a lot of star cities. We usually get a GP a year. Um, we have a ton of players with legacy cards. But we actually only have one store that consistently gets, uh, you know, even 15 weekly for legacy. And the other major retailer in, in the t in the city of Atlanta, uh, you know, just won't put any effort towards sanctioning, uh, promoting, or pushing Eternal Formats Legacy most specifically. Not even modern, really. And you know, I just wonder from the retailer perspective, uh, unless you're a big online retailer who's going to use your store as a vehicle to buy Eternal cards. Uh, in other words, your weekly allows you to 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 deal in those cards and you've got a significant presence on TCG player or whatever your outlet is for selling cards. You know, there's just not a lot of incentive, at least the retailers here would tell you, to sink time and effort into eternal formats because there's just no monetary return. There's only seven days in the week, um, especially the weekend days, which are super valuable for these store owners and their square footage. So, you know, I think that's another another barrier to Eternal formats taking off is you've got to kind of fight with the store owners over their prime hours and their space because at the end of the day they are paying for that space and they're paying for the air conditioning to uh, to keep you cool while you sit amongst the unbathed masses that that are Magic players, you know. So, so uh, I want to bring up two other points. Um, Jacob, you mentioned that uh, one good option is to allow a certain number of proxies. One thing I've noticed that's becoming increasingly popular is a set number of proxies, say 10 or 15 is becoming kind of common with drains hitting $200. Um, another thing I'm seeing a lot of is a set number of proxies, say 10 or 15, and then pay for each proxy after that. That way people can play immediately, but it does, like we said, it encourages them to buy the rest of those cards so that they're not having to pay $30 for their vintage tournament every week or every month. They slowly get to build up those cards over time. That also brings up another point which uh, we mentioned in our emails back and forth before the show, was that another good way to help uh, grow the community is prizes for things other than winning. Because obviously not all of us can top four every week, and um, some of us, if you're as bad as me, top four very infrequently. And this is another thing we've seen, uh, I've seen a lot more of recently, is doing something like maybe a raffle, or uh, having some alternative win condition, like um, in a vintage tournament, maybe whichever deck, uh, whichever deck doesn't have power or doesn't have bazaars uh, that does the best, that gets a prize, or a raffle for a prize, or any a number of other things that encourages people to come out and play even if they're not necessarily likely to win. And I think that's another thing that can definitely grow the uh, format and community as a whole. Yeah, absolutely. Um, <clears throat> one thing we all, all do often is uh, door prizes. Um, so whoever joins the tournament has a random chance of winning a prize, provided you didn't, let's say, top four and, and get the credit or the, the card prize. <clears throat> um, another thing we'll we haven't really tried yet uh, locally, but um, Sam did mention it, is essentially uh, achievement points. For instance, um, I, mean, I know this is pretty common in Vintage, for instance, uh, winning with uh, no deck. 
you know, or uh, or actually decking someone, let's say, with an ancestral recall. I mean, uh, essentially, just creating these scenarios that encourages players to do really wild things and really try to push the limits of their deck. Um, and uh, let's say the, at the end of every round, whoever uh, was able to get the most amount of these uh, essentially victory points um, would be eligible for a raffle. Let's say at the end of the tournament. Um, and so it's another way to kind of encourage the uh, the player base to really try to uh, really try to get engaged the format and uh, own it, so to speak. Yeah, I think that lends itself really well to vintage. Um, you know, in legacy, I also think when you start introducing pro uh, proxies in legacy, which I've seen, I, I maybe I'm wrong, but I think you're going to turn away as many people as you're going to encourage to come. So. Uh, your diehards are going to turn their nose up at it, and your, you know, so so you may lose as many people as you're going to, to gain. Uh, I mean, I would say a third of the people at our store enjoy just the aesthetics of Legacy, just playing with powerful cards. Um, you know, I don't want to sit across from somebody with Force of Will scribbled on uh, planes. I just, it's just not magic to me. But I'm an elitist knob. And that's definitely something you have to weigh with your individual metagames. Some some groups are more forgiving of that than others. And it's something, again, like I've said, uh, you really want to do whatever your legacy community wants in terms of like times and locations. Uh, TOs and store owners, reach out to your communities and ask them, hey, would it be okay if we allowed proxies if it meant more people? And if a lot of people say no, then don't. But if a lot of people say, yeah, we want a bigger community, then maybe that's what you should go for. But it's definitely worth reaching out and finding out what other people think about these ideas before you do something that, in Sean's case, for example, might harm the community more than it helps it. Matt, any closing uh, thoughts on the topic? Well, no, I think that was pretty much we covered everything that we wanted to talk about. Basically, I think if you are the one who's trying to create the legacy community, you just got to remember that you know people are counting on you. Try to be there as often as possible. If there is a weekly legacy tournament and you are the person who is driving the legacy community... Be there. Show up. Land cards. Don't be a flake. As soon as you start having waning attendance, like we've had recently at one of the stores, we've had waning attendance the last few months, not only due to school, but I mean, if you get, say, a six-man one time, well, then people might not show up next time because they'll kind of go, ah, I won't bother going out there. You know, then we might not actually fire an event. So make sure you get people out. Make sure, say, if you need to make a Facebook group, get people to sign in. Do whatever you need to to actually ensure and show people, hey, there are people here. Show up. I think that's that's pretty key. Yeah. I usually do, like, uh, on our Facebook group, I usually do a uh, roll call a couple days ahead of time just to uh, kind of get the interest. And based on that, I can more or less gauge. For instance, if I uh, get four or five people to respond, we'll usually fire off an eight-man. Um, if I only get two or three, I still show up, um, provided my schedule allows it and, uh, you know, we may not get a full uh, eight-man going, but at least play a couple games, get them some practice in, um, encourage people to come out for the next time. All right, do we want to move on to our next segment, uh, cards that we believe are underplayed? Yeah, I think that would be good. All right, let's see. Hold on, let me scroll up and find this list that Sean emailed us. Starting from my list is definitely uh, risky. Uh, yeah. Given that I put on cards that are underplayed. Um, let's see. How many suppression fields can we fit into a format? God, that card is really good. I'll kick it off. Gets all three of Deathrite Shaman's abilities. Don't forget, Deathrite Shaman's uh, abilities are not mana abilities. Yeah, I'll, I'll start since uh, my list has 
some miserable things on here. I'll start with some of my pet cards that I feel are underplayed. Uh, the first one uh, that comes to mind is Suppression Field, which, for those of you who don't know, activated abilities that aren't mana abilities cost two more to activate. So, uh, for white and one other, and it's enchantment from uh, Ravnica, I believe. So, uh, number one, the average Star City player, I've learned from experience anyway, doesn't actually know what an activated ability is. Uh, so Suppression Field can be a great route for you to get uh, GRVs on your opponent all day long. Uh, the other great thing is that it hits, I would say, I would say it hits nearly 90% of the, the decks that you see uh, across a, a metagame like Star City. It's going to hit something uh, in all those decks, and most notably it'll hit their mana. Uh, the activated ability on Fetchlands, Wastelands, uh, the aforementioned Deathrite Shaman, all those abilities um, on Deathrite Shaman are not mana abilities. Uh, the, the the one that makes mana actually is Any Planeswalkers? Yeah, any Planeswalkers. Um, uh, even fringe strategies like Metalworker. Most of, most of Death and Taxes is hit by it. Yes, that entire deck actually caves to Suppression Field. Uh, you know, Rushidden Port, Mangara. Maverick, the whole, the whole deck is yes, hosted by it. the entire deck, in fact, does get hosted by it. So Suppression Field, um, you know, it's a powerful card. It's a powerful prison strategy. The obvious problem with Suppression Field is that you are then constrained uh, in terms of the mana choices you make. So you're looking at playing a lot of basics. You're looking at playing uh, artifact mana sources, uh, chrome moxes, mox diamonds, things like that that don't get hit by Suppression Field. But uh, backed up with a clock and or backed up with other lock pieces... Uh, or backed up in a deck that doesn't necessarily want to do anything until it just wins, like Enchantress, uh, Suppression Field can be a powerful card uh, that can really hamper your opponents, as well as give them frustrating game losses as they fail to understand how the card actually works. Yeah, I know I have a friend who is building a hate deck. He's getting back into Legacy, and he said, what can I do to hate out the format? And he just started looking through cards, and he just said, I want to play for Suppression Field main deck. That seems really good. Yeah, it's a soft null rod in a lot of cases also. Yeah. Definitely hits a lot of the mid-range strategies um, that we see cropping up in Legacy. Um, one notable that it doesn't really hit is combo decks, um, which are generally going to be more spell-based and not permanent-based activated abilities. Um, fortunately, uh, a deck that is going to be utilizing Suppression Field will have access to um, other taxing effects, maybe for instance uh, like Trinisphere or even Thalia um, and, and ways to essentially cut off from casting a lot of spells uh, which in part helps out hose the, uh, for instance, Fetchlands um, by making making it really, really expensive to be able to do just about any basic action in the game in Legacy. Certainly, along the same lines of Suppression Field, uh, Null Rod is, uh, it's not just in Vintage, it's in Legacy too. Um, it hits all of the equipment. It hits Sensei's Divining Top. I hear that card's pretty good. So, I mean, it's also, you got to remember, I mean, hitting, what else? So, equipment, it's hitting all of the artifact lands, isn't it? Hold on, let me read Null Rod again. I feel bad. Yeah, Null Rod ab absolutely stops mana abilities cold. So does Stony Silence, for reference. It's, it's White Cousin. But, Sean, it does nothing. It's true, it does nothing. Um, and that's another card you can get value on your opponents on because there's a $100 Korean version available. So. This is true. Not only is Null Rod really good right now, 
or could be really good right now. Chalice and Trinisphere are criminally underplayed right now. So, I mean, especially in a deck... Okay, so Chalice of the Void, as you all know, XX, Artifact, Counters, whatever, how many counters it's got on it, uh, very important. So, if you're playing Chalice, it basically means you're probably going to be skipping on your 1-drops, or you're going to have to find a way around Chalice for your 1-drops. So, Cavern of Souls comes to mind, so say if you want to do some Goblin Welder stuff, that's how you get around it. But Chalice is backbreaking. Uh, Brainstorm, Ponder, Swords to Plowshares. Um, All of Rug. The entire Rug deck is hit by <laughs> the, the, that one The card. format really doesn't like Chalice of the Void. Um, I know a lot of the time people are going to say, but Abrupt Decay kills Chalice of the Void. Well, Abrupt Decay kills a lot of shit. So, I mean, that's not a fucking argument. I'm sorry. Like, the, the main problem with Chalice of the Void is actually having a deck that actually exploits the card. So the problem is, if you're playing Chalice of the Void, you lose a lot of the good cards in the format, so what are you actually doing about it? So you have to kind of switch to removal or search or something else that does not revolve around something at one, which is kind of hard to do. So, I mean, if you want to play Sense of Divining Top, it's a no-go. If you want to play Brainstorm, nope. Ponder, nope. So you'll have to be doing something else to try and either your manipulation or your removal will have to uh, be changed. Trinisphere is also really good right now. Um... Making everything cost three is a big deal. Everybody wants to cast like a one drop, then a two drop, then maybe a one and a two drop on turn three. That's that's where the format is trying to be. It's very mid-range, you know, when you want to get your stuff out on the field. But like a turn one Trinisphere is pretty much the worst thing that magic can kind of throw at you on turn <laughs> one. Yeah, I, I, I'm definitely a huge, huge fan of Trinisphere, especially on the first turn. Uh, provided all goes well, uh, you essentially buy three time walks from your opponent by casting it on your first turn. Um, the first spell they'll be able to cast is turn three, and by that point, you've already had three turns to play stuff that costs three or more. Um, considering you cast it on the first turn for three mana, you should be well-equipped to essentially press that advantage and do something really backbreaking for your opponent. Also, let me use this as an opportunity to tell every idiot I've ever played against at a Star City... Your fucking Force of Will costs three mana in addition to pitching a card when I have my Trinisphere out. And I know you're calling the judge to ask that, so I know you have Force of Will in your hand. Thank you. So, as you can see, Trinisphere stops like if they're tapped out. No Force of Will. Uh, you time walk them possibly for three turns. And even if you don't time walk them, imagine playing against Elves, where you go turn one, Trinisphere, pass. So even if turn one Trinisphere doesn't happen, say turn two Trinisphere, which if you have it and you're playing a deck with Trinisphere, turn two Trinisphere is going to happen. How the fuck do they get out of that? One elf well, a see, turn. See what they do. One elf. Is a they go they go main phase and then they go into the scoop phase and you start the next game. Exactly. So, I mean Trinisphere also too all these like rug bug whatever decks. I mean if they have force of will for it, great. And if they don't, you're just beating them. Uh, all the storm combo decks that are running around, preying on the mid-range, it's really hard to beat a Trinisphere. Especially if you're coupling it with Chalice on, say, one. Like, their Chain of Vapors suddenly turn into, fuck, this card does nothing Vapors. So, Trinisphere, Chalice Avoid, good cards. The question is, what deck do you put it in? Mud, some sort of stacks deck, might not be too bad right now. I think a red-white moon stacks deck would be interesting. Ooh. Chalice, Magus the Moon, Blood Moon, Trinisphere, Suppression Field. And basically, after that, it doesn't matter. If your opponent is either locked down by any one of those lock pieces, it doesn't really matter what you're doing. 
Yeah, you could even win with Cough of a Hammer at that point. Yeah, or Lodestone Golems. Like, pfft. God, I love Cough of a Hammer. So I have a friend right now who's getting back into Legacy. Uh, he hasn't played in several years, and he decided he was going to build Mud, which is what all three, all of the cards we've named thus far go into. And he was asking me to go over some strategy with him, things like that, and he said, so Chalice of the Void obviously is really good. And I said, yeah, and he said, so if I don't know what I'm playing against, should I still play it? And I was like, you mean turn one? He said, yeah. I said, yeah, if you have no idea what you're playing against, turn one Chalice of the Void at one, absolutely a perfectly fine play. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it shuts down... Legacy is all about efficient spells. So if you're able to shut down the one mana drop, um, you're getting miles ahead from your opponent. Um, partly because your deck is really set up to, um, to be able to take advantage of not running the one drops. Most Legacy decks on the opposite side are really gunning for that one CC um, slot. So... You definitely see it with Rug. Like, the entire deck is one-drops. Um, but even some of the aggro decks, like Death Rite Shaman uh, decks, they have Brainstorm, Death Rite Shaman, Swords to Plashers, Discard on the 1cc. Um, it's going to... Uh, it's really going to just make such a big impact on the game. And now we're going to move on to cards that uh, will also be a little bit more playable after the rules change in about two weeks' time. So, as you, we have covered in the previous podcast, the legend rule is changing so that both players will be able to control legends of the same type and they won't kill each other. So, what this actually really matters with is, you know, possibly, say, Geist of St. Traft, but more importantly, Jace the fucking Mind Sculptor. Because, you know, hey, he's a staple of the format. So, definitely cards that are going to be either played more frequently in main decks or even sideboards are things like... You know, Red Elemental Blast, uh, Oblivion Ring, not Detention Sphere. For the love of God, if I see anyone Detention Sphere or fucking Jace on the other side of the board, I'm going to hang myself. You know you're going to see it. Oh, I know it's going to happen. Like, some Dirtle is just going to run into it and then want to kill themselves. But that's okay. Over-under over on seeing that on a Star City oh. feed. Yo, I mean, nothing beats the Phyrexian Voker, Revoker with the post-it note labeled Wasteland at Bazaar of Moxon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a good one. This is true. Uh, so, like, Oblivion Ring is going to be good. Uh, I think Caracas, even though Caracas doesn't kill uh, Caracas anymore, I think if people are going to be starting to play this Thespian Depths garbage combo that I actually don't think is going to be that good outside of, say, something like 43 lands they can actually exploit fetching for two lands at the same time. Uh, Caracas to bounce the actual Merit Lage token, which is a legend, uh, as well as, you know, Mazevith, stuff like that. What's going to be interesting is the Merit Lage on Merit Lage battles. Yeah, I'll tackle with my 2020 Flying Indestructible. Into my 2020 flying indestructible. Oh, oh wait, you can counterattack? Shit, I just lost the game. Exactly. No, I have berserk, motherfucker. Berserk. Get there. New tech, ladies and gentlemen. You heard it here first. Berserk. Oh man, I'm gonna go on Cersei and buy out all their copies right now. Um, I think the depth hexmage depths combo we're gonna see, or even you know thespian depths, or whatever, is gonna see a little bit more play. Um, is something that's going to really see play in the sideboards, I think, or it will eventually get to that point. Uh, Umazawa's Jitae is a beating. Uh, the new rule basically says that whoever gets the first Jitae is going to win the Jitae battle, as long as they can keep creature on board. So, running more either Disenchants or Abrupt Decays or whatever, 
Uh, Marika Kasari is going to be a fetchable kill your Jite. I think that's going to be pretty key, like we saw back in the Stoneblade era of 2011. Uh, it's going to be a good card. I think if you don't have Marika Kasari, go pick one up, throw it in your sideboard, it's probably going to be good to go. Uh, Vampire Hexmage, uh, killing their Jaces without turning off your Jaces. You're going to need a card to do that. Um, Maelstrom Pulse is pretty slow. Most people aren't running Bug anyway. Um, there is no card that just says Destroy Tiger Planeswalker at instant speed, so... Yeah, there is. Lightning Bolt. And a kid... Oh, boo. Psionic Blast. A psionic Blast. Actually, that, <laughs> wait, that could wait, be wait, not wait. too bad. Instant speed Planeswalker removal. Seems like there's only really Jace the Mind Sculptor as the offender. What about Red Elemental Blast? Well, Red Elemental Blast is out of the board. I'm talking about more of a main deck, kind of. But Red Elemental Blast, like, if people are starting to run, like, two Red Elemental Blasts in the board, I think going to three is probably going to be where it's at. You know, three, four, depending on the deck that you're playing. So I think uh, the deck choices that people might be moving to, um, anything with Punishing Fires is going to be good. So something to say, like a Rug Midrange, running, say, like, Tarmogoy, Vendillion Cliques, maybe even Countertop if you wanted to run. And, you know, a Punishing Fires package. Good Agrilome. We talked about that before. Uh, miracles. Uh, I think Miracles is really well positioned. You know, you've got your Rest in Peace, you've got your Counterbalance, you've got your Sensei Divine Top, all the good things. You've got your own Jace the Mind Sculptors. Uh, you're a very good Jace deck. Uh, you have Vendelia Cliques to attack their uh, guy. If you wanted to, Notion Thief, depending on your build. Uh, but also, you have access to Red, so we have the Red Elemental Blast. We have, if you wanted to run Punishing Miracles, that's a thing too. Blood Moon. Never a bad choice. What are your guys' thoughts? I, I think uh, the Miracles might be onto something um, just as a way to address all the uh, the mid-range decks. Now, by no means is it an easy deck to play. It's uh, it's a definitely a deck that rewards a lot of practice and a lot of format knowledge. Um, so it's definitely not a beginner deck, but um, it doesn't take too long to get up to speed with this kind of deck. Um, and he also gives you two Color Splash as variants. Um, I mean, you could really run three... Uh, you can run the bla uh, straight blue-white, but uh, you're really missing out on powerful splashes from black and red. Uh, or red, rather. Uh, red obviously giving you uh, firepower in the blue matchups, and black gives you better removal, as well as uh, the uh, ever-impressive Notion Thief. And if we're playing Miracles, that means that we can play as our win condition, Helm with Rest in Peace, and we've discussed this before, Rest in Peace is just sick against the format. You're getting rid of Deathrite Shaman, you're getting rid of the entire Rug deck, you're getting rid of Knight of the Reliquary. If you can just destroy Graveyards, turn two of every single game, you're doing really well. Random wins against Dredge in a tournament. Also, too, I think a lot of, a card that a, a lot of people have overlooked, especially in the control matches that may be coming up with Jace and Jace, and a lot of damage isn't being dealt directly. Uh, Luminarch Ascension might be something worth looking into, especially in a Miracles build, if you're running a Light Tutor, maybe, uh, as a one-of. There, there will be times when you don't get hit, and four turns is in that deck is, you know, just, just one of, just a small segment on the path to going to time of the Miracles Mirror. Yeah, it's probably even better than Entreat the Angels in those matchups. Comes down turn two. Yeah. These, very easy to protect. Um, and also has the potential to just make endless streams of 4-4 four, four Angel tokens. It's a very good card in, in the control mirror. I'm not sure how frequent the, the mirror actually is, considering almost no one is playing uh, Miracles at this point. But uh, if your metagame is, uh, is control heavy, that's uh, definitely some, something to consider.
Yeah, uh, I think the miracle or the the miracles matchup is going to get a little bit tougher. I think also the power of click kind of goes through the roof now, as they can use it as a as a, as a better control card, and um, they can't they can go all the way up to four, so that's going to be pretty tough to beat. Um, being able to use it as a win con and as hand disruption with impunity. So, yeah, I agree. Uh, miracles is definitely uh, going to be a force to be reckoned with. I think if the format goes longer, you know, then maybe some of the prison strategies can also uh develop you know develop a little bit more yeah things like armageddon if the game's going to go seven or eight turns a card like armageddon is essentially game over for a miracles deck that's going to play its lands out and it wants to play six to seven lands out so one card that i've uh, recently um got reintroduced to and this was uh you know scouring the elf forms and uh turns out there's a green creature that acts as armageddon realm razor uh, we saw a lot of this in Standard back in Shards of Alara block. Um, it being a green creature is actually very, very important for Greens and Zenith or Natural Order. And has the added effect of, uh, ar you know, effectively, Armageddon. Um, I, I think one of the best ways to attack uh, known metagames or even known strategies to play off-the-wall cards that provide a huge impact to the board. And Realm Razor is definitely one of those. And if you uh, also awkwardly pause when he comes into play, perhaps you can get somebody to swords him with his trigger on the stack. I was going for those angles. So that would <laughs> remove their lands indefinitely, would it not? <laughs> it's a trick I've used with Tide Hollow Sculler to, to great effect over the years at various events in Star Cities. You, you play the Sculler, and you very, very, very calmly and clearly put the trigger on the stack, and using your index finger in an upward-pointing fashion, point at your opponent and say, targeting you. And the uninformed player will stare for a while, think about it, and some of them will actually then go ahead with that trigger on the stack and remove your Tide Hollow Sculler, giving you essentially super mind rot him castigate on a stick. Well, the stick's gone, but you, you get the point. So you get two cards for one, basically. Yeah, that seems like a pretty powerful effect. Um, all the more reason to, uh, to really know how uh, rules interactions work before going into a tournament. And paying $40. So speaking of cards that induce a, a a knowledge of rules interactions to do well with the card, Cabal Therapy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, now, now to be fair, I think I think we could probably devote an entire episode to this card. There's so many intricacies of playing this card, even just from like a rules knowledge perspective, as well as um, kind of a a rules format and uh, kind of a bluff attack uh, angle. So I feel like. Maybe we could push this one out. I feel like we could push this one out to possibly the next episode. Um, just because I feel like it would not do justice to try to discuss it within uh, the remaining sh remaining time in the show. Damn. All right, then. Yeah. So look forward to, uh, look forward to Cabal Is Therapy in uh, episode five. All right, so uh, we're not going to be doing Cabal Therapy today because we just don't have enough room to squeeze in such a lengthy topic. Ah, that's what she said. So we're going to be talking about uh, pimping, which quite a few people have asked us to mention. Um, and by pimping, of course, you mean things like Matt's Ziploc baggie full of beta dual lands, um, talking about you know foils, things of that nature. Um, I'll go ahead and start us off. Um, I got into pimping, actually, the, when I first got back into Magic, as with many people, uh, 
As with many people our age who play Magic, I played when I was a kid and got back into it a little later. And uh, the first uh, time that I got back into it was a Shards of Alara draft uh, at Shards of Alara release. And I opened a foil Elspeth Knight Errant and I said, well that looks pretty cool and that was the beginning of my pimping career. Um, probably the coolest thing that I have, I should probably post them on the source, is I got a... Uh, a friend was selling all of his legacy staples, and he just handed me four foil dazes. And he said, you want these. I'm not selling them. You owe me. And he told me how much I owed him. And he said, and you're not allowed to sell these ever. And I was okay. And the next day we went and uh, met Matt Wilson, who's a friend of a friend. And he signed them for me in a silver paint pen, which looks really, really cool on old border foils. Um, more recently, I've actually gotten out of the pimping game a bit, just because... I would much rather uh, have more cards than have uh, have just a few pretty cards. So uh, just a few weeks ago, actually, at GP Houston, I sold several play sets of foil fetches and replaced them with non-foil fetches and underground seas and moxen. And uh, as much as I do miss having lands that cost more than my opponent's deck, it is really cool to be able to build whatever deck you want in whatever format you want. So that's my take on it. Um, I'm kind of getting out of it. But I know the other three of y'all are much more into it than I am. So, Jacob, you want to talk a little bit about this? Sure. Um, my first foray into pimping involved the Urza's Legacy pre-release. Um, so maybe, maybe you guys are familiar, maybe not. Um, that was the first set published by Wizards of the Coast to feature foil cards in uh, randomly uh, boosters. So I actually do remember one of my first cards, Thornwood Fairies. Uh, I think a 1-1 one, one pinger with flying. Um, Swinging below your knee! Yeah, you know, going, going deep. <laughs> um, but essentially that, uh, that started me down the path of, uh, wow, these, these foils look pretty cool. You know, here I am at uh, 12 years old thinking, oh my gosh, these foils are cool! Um... <clears throat> So, of course, I did the next <laughs> most logical thing, which is uh, decide, well, I'm going to take this, uh, this awesome Ponza deck that I have, which uh, no one likes to play against, and make it all foil. So at least I have fun with it. Uh, can't say so much for my opponent. Um, and uh, through tournament winnings, uh, was actually able to foil out a good portion of it. Um, included uh, a brick load of foil mountains, which uh, only got released in Mercadian Masks, um, along with foil stone rains, foil pillage, foil shocks, seal of fire, um, and that was really my first experience with realizing that I cannot get all the cards for this deck in foil, for instance, Hammer of Bowgarden, um, and that really set the trend for me later down the line, realizing that, you know, there's some, some decks, especially like the good decks, uh, you won't be able to completely foil out. So at that point, I decided to stop in my tracks um, and switch gears. Uh, unfortunately, I took a break from Magic uh, during high school, and uh, much like Sam, came back into into Magic after after I started college. Uh, met some friends and got back into it. Um, and as part of that, uh, I was scourging uh, through eBay, looking for some uh, interesting cards, and I came across a couple boxes of Korean starter decks. Um, and I thought, oh, that's kind of interesting, and the, and the price was right, and uh, decided to, you know, splurge a little bit, uh, realizing that I could probably get some 
uh, Mishra's factories and storage plowshares and lightning bolts. Um, and so from that, uh, that treasure loot, I was actually able to build uh, quite a few playsets of uh, legacy staples, um, just as the format was really uh, announced and uh, getting off the ground. And uh, from then on, I'd, uh, I've really been into Korean cards. Uh, I, I really enjoy the, the, how the font looks. Um, it does share three letters from my last name, so that's kind of another uh, tie-in that I prefer. But uh, that's really yeah, that, that is really is a reach. Um, not gonna not gonna deny it. Uh, maybe it's a way to justify my degenerate uh, spending habits for uh, for pimping out my decks. But uh, I was more than happy to see that they were reintroducing Korean language cards with M uh, M12. So. Um, I got right back on that horse and uh, continued uh, pimping out my decks. Um, if you follow me on Twitter, you've probably seen quite a few of my uh, decks being posted. Uh, usually, like to take a snap a photo of what I'm playing this week and uh, throw it up there. And for the better part, it's going to be uh, as pimp as I can uh, manage to get it. Sean, how about uh, I'm going to popcorn to you? I know you're a big fan of uh, of black bordering and in foreign language, so uh, why don't you share with some of your conquests? Yeah, well, I got my first exposure to magic uh, during winter break of my senior year in high school, so that's to tell you how fucking old I am. That's like December of 1993. You're an old man! So. Oh, get off my lawn! But the, uh, the advantage of being old like I am is that A, I got a lot of cards early, and B, um, I earn a great deal of money at my job and therefore can buy whatever I want. So the the style I like, I guess Pimp is in the eye of the beholder, which anybody will tell you, but the style I like is the older cards. I like betas, alphas, uh, and I also like uh, foreign language cards. Foreign language, as much for aesthetics as it is for uh, putting a little bit of value on knowing the card pool. So uh, you go to an event with a deck that's primarily Korean or Russian, whatever your language of choice is, uh, Japanese probably being the, the most popular one. Uh, you know, you'd be surprised how many people just don't actually ask for the Oracle text because they think they know what it does. Um, so it gives you a little bit of a strategic advantage. It gives you a psychological advantage. And to me, it looks more aesthetically pleasing than English. So um, I focus pretty much on uh, trying to get beta stuff. Uh, I actually had at one point uh, over 40 alpha and beta duels. Uh, it wasn't a match set. I kind of half sold out of the game about seven or eight years ago. Uh, so I sold my power, and I sold about 45 Alpha and Beta Dual Lands uh, when the Euro was at about, oh, two bucks. So, um, and most of my stuff went overseas as far as the Dual Lands go. Thankfully, I kept another full set of 40 Foreign Black Order Dual Lands and a set of revised ones, too. So I didn't have to start completely over a few years ago. But, yeah, my tastes usually run... Alpha, Beta, and then uh, my language preference is Russian or Korean. I'm impartial to either of those, and I even enjoy German when I can't get either of those two. And, uh, yeah, that's about it for, for my pimping. I will not play, you know, any white border card that isn't uh, from Portal Three Kingdoms or Starter. I'll just not play that deck, uh, pretty much. So that's how firm I am on it. Because winning in styles is the most important. It's more important than actually winning, as well as frustrating your opponents by having cards they can't read. <laughs> so I kind of got started in the pimp game probably about five years ago or so. Started finishing up my revised dual land playsets. I managed to finish two of them, 
And I got to the point where I was kind of sitting there with a bunch of cards and extra staples going, well, I could put all my decks together at once, which was fine, but I wasn't using a lot of the cards, and it was costing a lot of money to buy doubles of everything. So at that point, I kind of sold about, you know, a good portion of my stock, and I bought, started buying into, like, if I needed an alpha or beta copy of something, I would do that, or English Legends, or, or what have you. I started to blackboard out my decks. Um... Then, kind of as time progressed, I was starting to complete my beta set. And eventually, about two and a half years ago, I finally ended up finishing a non-powered set. Because I knew that the power wasn't really a big deal. It was just more of an issue of money rather than finding all the other rares in good condition was, was actually the tough part. So I, I was kind of sitting there and at the point that I actually got recent, quite recently gotten a job. And I kind of said, well, what am I actually going to do? I mean, I need one of each beta duel. Or I needed one of each beta duel anyway to go, you know, finish my non-powered set. So what am I actually going to do? What am I going to start collecting next? And I decided that I had, like I said, you know, at this point about a playset and a half of revised duels still. So what am I going to do? So I decided to, you know, slowly, but assuredly, uh, sell off some of my revised duels and my other stuff again, which I had accumulated doubles. And start investing in completing a beta dual land playset, um, which is still ongoing, unfortunately. Uh, it's it. I like to be honest. I find pimping more of an adventure. Like finding the cards is most of the fun. Is finding them, playing with them is nice. But I like the hunt of like making the deal or like having to track down a guy and like rural Portugal who has this card at the right price. Like, that's more interesting to me in meeting people and... Are you sure you're not talking about heroin? <laughs> Black tar heroin. That's exactly what I'm talking No. Um, <laughs> but basically finding those cards, and especially at the right price. Like, I mean, pimping is... Pimping ain't easy. But... Uh, <laughs> but a show is fun. Necessary. But it is definitely fun. The whole Like, if you have a ton of money sitting around, you can go get whatever. But say doing it on a budget, like, I will only decide to pay $400 for a Beta Bayou that is in reasonably good shape. And then going out and finding someone t that has it for the right price, I find that more interesting. I mean, if, if, I mean, if you have enough money, you can just go buy whatever you want. It doesn't matter. People, women, children, you know, uh, cardboard cars, whatever, jewelry, it doesn't matter. But so you're the pimp that basically can take kind of the, the road apple older hooker who's got a few warts, might have... C-section scar. Yeah, and you can still, you know, you, you get the most value out of that. Yeah, that's your, your brand of pimping. Yeah, and, and I just really like having, you know, or the best art was also a big thing of mine. You know, what's the nicest art? Well, personally, like, a lot of people really, really ride me on the forums for having Ice Age Swords to Plowshares. Because it's not beta. Yeah. But, you know, to be honest, I kind of prefer the art of one of them. Whatever. The point is, it's quite... Yeah, as long as it's old frame... I'm happy with Exactly. But now, fun fact to make you feel old. Old frames and new frames have been around for the same amount of time. <sighs> wow. Yeah, Indeed. Old fucker. Yeah. So Can we get, like, super retro frames? Like, I, I've seen uh, a couple alters on... The Jace the Mines? On Twitter. The yeah, both Jace. I've also seen, like, Blightsteel Colossus in an actual brown border. Yeah. And that just looks fly. I, I'm ready to drop down to like any altruist who can actually make that happen, while keeping the card tournament legal. For sure, 
But I think like pimping is a really nice game, not only because you get to you know have fun with your cards, you get to you know foreign languages, especially into the Russian, because a lot of my friends were doing Japanese, and you know I want to be different, so getting the Russian cards is kind of interesting and fun. But also too, like if you have regular staples, and you suddenly start getting into pimping, those are all those English copies that you can go trade away to friends or whatever, so you can get more people into legacies. So not only is pimping you know good for us it's also good for the community in general that you're in what do you guys think yeah that, that's a stretch <laughs> okay yeah, well, I, 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 much I, I do that. agree that the, uh, <laughs> the adventure I think just of finding new, cards is really really fun um i actually and I, I guess i shouldn't publish this until uh, after the auction closes there is a black lotus on ebay right now whoa 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 whoa, whoa. hold like, on hold on I might be buying that, so don't spill the beans yet. Are you talking about the one that's that's covered in paint? Oh no! Go right ahead. Carry on. There's <laughs> carry there's on. As long as it's not the lotus the... I'm trying to bid on, carry on. There's a black lotus on eBay right now. It's an unli It's a real unlimited lotus that is just. It looks like somebody poured acrylic paint onto it, and it's like stripes of white, blue, black, red, green. And in the text box, it says. Tap and sacrifice Black Lotus. Learn that you can't paint. Wow. And uh, to oh me, my God. it's tournament. It is tournament legal because it's a real Black Lotus. And you know what? If I can get that for a hundred bucks, that's worth it to me. And I have a funny story, and I have a funny looking Black Lotus. And that, that's like you said. I think that it's really fun to have these adventures where you're trying to find these cards at cheap prices. Even if sometimes you end up with things like a Black Lotus that says "Learn you can't paint." So I think on that note, I don't think we'll be able to cap that. Um, thanks, everyone, for uh, tuning in this week. Uh, be on the lookout for uh, a dissertation on Cabal Therapy in the upcoming episode. And uh, Hey, maybe we'll do some challenges. Like, here's what you're on, here's what's in your hand, and here's what you think your opponent's on. Let's just say they put a flooded strand into play and pass the turn, that kind of thing. We can do some Cabal Therapy challenges. I like that. Oh, uh, oh. Let's let's on that note. Let's uh, turn around to the the listeners. Um, shoot us some scenarios, and uh, we'd be happy to discuss them. Try to figure them out. Maybe reason through them. Uh, make our best suggestion at what the best play with Cabal Therapy against a certain opening. Also, I think what we're going to do is we're going to uh, provide some of the links. We were talking about a few decks, like we were talking about proposed builds of say miracles or whatever. Uh, we're just going to put some. Uh, possible starting deck lists in the uh, description, then you guys can run with them, see what you think, or work on them, whatever. Again, thanks for listening, and uh, I'm Jacob Corey, signing off. I'm Matt Pavlik. Sean O'Brien. I'm Sam Craven. Send us your feedback, including any ideas you've got for uh, potential scenarios with Cabal Therapy, to our Twitter, at EternalMTG, or to our email address, EverydayEternalCast at gmail.com. Play my land, tap it for mana, cast my <laughs> death right shaman. Pass the turn, and he plays out an island, and I laugh knowing he's on Omnitel. It's the 
Dirtly internet deck that I hate to play against. Jacob can't get into our fucking call.